Welcome to Your Parenting is Showing, a podcast about what happens when your nice, smooth, professional front is upended by your parenting backstage in pandemic time. Where two so-called experts bring their friends on to talk about their own pandemic parenting wins and blunders, highs and lows, or as we used to say when our kids were little, popsicles and poopsicles. I'm Ellen. I'm a child psychologist in Boston. And I'm Molly, a local church pastor in Berkeley, California. And together we wrote a parenting book aiming to blend the best of child psychological science with a progressive Christian wisdom. To guide our parenting on both the easy days and the really, really messy ones, from toddler to teen and beyond. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Your Parenting is Showing episode, what is it, Elle? Six, seven? Oh, I think we're... Five, oh, I think it's five, five or six. Um, it's just like five the pandemic. It feels like it's, it already feels like it's been forever in a good way. The podcast, we are rounding up on a year of the pandemic. I think we're all getting a little bit frayed. And so our guest today is right on time. We have my dear friend, Reverend Dr. Sarah Lund, who is a UCC minister. She served in all kinds of settings of churches, large and small. Um, she served as a regional minister, ministering to ministers. She served um, as an executive at a seminary, and she's also currently serving as addition, in addition to being the senior minister at First Congregational Church of Indianapolis. Did I get that right, Sarah? The name of your church? <laughs> she's also um, national staff at the United Church of Christ as the Minister for Disabilities and Mental Health justice, as well as a partner and mother. And she's just written a fabulous new book um, that is a sequel to her first fabulous book. And the new book is called Blessed Union, Breaking the Silence about Mental Illness and Marriage. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, it's so good to be with you all. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. We're really glad you're here. Yeah. And like I said, your new book is right on time as we've been doing this for almost a year. And a lot of us are kind of, you know, you think we'd be celebrating coming up on a year, how great we are at pandemic living. Um, but I think, you know, consciously or subconsciously, a lot of us are saying, I can't do this anymore. Like all the things I've learned got us through so far, but I'm out, I'm out of gas. So Tell us, first tell us about your new book, tell us why you wrote it, and tell us what pain you hope it will heal. Oh, thank you, Molly. And I want to thank you all for Bless This Mess, right? And one thing I love about the language of that is bless. And that, of course, resonates with me so much. Um, when I chose to break the silence and to tell my true stories about mental illness, mm. I also really gravitated toward that concept of blessing. And for me, it really comes from this spiritual space of God's power and presence in the midst of it all, right? And especially in the midst of the hardest things. And the passage where Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, you know, so that's what I love about our ability to talk about these really hard things, like through the lens of blessings. And so uh, thank you for the work you all are doing and, you know, shining a light in the shadows and that light is the blessing. And so Amen. helping, yeah, like helping each other that. find the, the blessing in the midst of it. Um, because, 
There is. I mean, there truly is. Um, I mean, we're all still alive, right? I mean, it's been a year and we are here. Thank and you so, for thank you for pastoring me right now because as a pastor, I say that a lot. I say, you know, there's this the, the big Glennon Doyle meme: we can do hard things, and and I've turned that into I've started saying we are doing hard. It's not just that we can; mm. we've been doing them for a long time, and here we still are, and we've survived everything we've been through so far. Because here we still not everyone survived. You know, I don't want right? to make light of that, but yeah, but we are still here. And thank you for that reminder that. I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's really true. And looking back on our lives, it is those times that are hardest that we really are most companioned by God. And there's so much transformation and resurrection happening in these hardest, hardest moments when we feel like we're barely holding on. I love that, Molly. And it's really um, helped me to think about this through the lens of trauma. And um, there's a great writer, Nancy Bowen, who looks at trauma in the Bible, and she studies the book of Ezekiel. And what she says is that that's a story about a nation in trauma, a person in trauma. And what she discovers in her research is that one way we can heal from our trauma is to tell the stories, mm-hmm. tell the stories mm-hmm. of the trauma and help, um, help the transformation from victim to survivor. Yes. So one thing I would encourage all of us as we think about this year surviving in a pandemic is how are we survivors? Right. Um, and to really claim the resiliency and all the little things that have helped us stay alive. And a lot of it, frankly, I know for me are privileges. And so, yes. you know, my book is about mental health. And I've been, as I've been sharing more and telling that story to help heal the traumas, um, I say honestly, that in my marriage, it is not two people, but nine people in my marriage. And that's a lot of (laughs) (laughs) privilege because um, it's my husband and I, and we both have individual therapists, right? We have a marriage therapist. We also have a family therapist and we have a child. And of course, our own mental health conditions, whether we're in treatment or not, we're in treatment and recovery and it impacts our child. Our child sees and hears and knows what we struggle with. And so we have the family therapist. We have um, the babysitter, which is essential for our weekly uh, dates, which in pandemic life, it's like when it's nice, it's out on the deck, just the two of us having our, you know, delivered dinner from mm. DoorDash. And um, in the winter months, it's our son eating mac and cheese at five and then going into the living room and then us having our, you know, delivery Indian food um, Friday. So um, who are the other folks? We have a general practice doctor. And um, we have a psychiatrist, you know, so it's just like all these people in our marriage yeah. uh, to help us, you know, and that's so much privilege. And so I just want to say that yeah. you know, I have excellent health insurance that has unlimited Thank mental health care. Wow. And that's, that's yeah. These days. Yeah. yeah. So that's a justice issue, yeah. right? When we Absolutely. talk about sure. it. And one of the things I really love that you talk about super explicitly in your book up front and throughout is that mental health is physical health. Your brain is part of your body. And this is a revolution and a shift that's beginning, but has not been, you know, really acculturated yet in American um, political and cultural life. And of course, our healthcare system's a mess and our we have terrible outcomes even for physical health. But I, do, I, I am so 
um, excited to see how many people are joining the conversation about mental health support and 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 really centering it and shifting how even you know medical doctors, not just clinicians, mm-hmm. psychiatrists, psychologists, think about it. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you guys have just given me enough to unpack that we're going to have to do six more episodes with just Sarah. <laughs> we'll do a whole series. I, I love it. Well, and I think, I mean, I'm just listening and thinking, obviously, this is my field. I'm in the mental health field is what I do all day, every day. And, um, you know, it's my hope that maybe that's part of the bless of the mess of this pandemic, that we we will shift more toward recognizing mental health as part of our physical health, because, you know, we're seeing that over and over. And it is being talked about more that, of course, this year is impacting everyone's mental health. Um, and, you know, the first direction was from our physical health, this pandemic impacting so many of us now impacting our mental health, but it's, it goes both ways. And I feel like, um, my hope, my hope is that one of the blessings that will come from this time is, um, sort of, a, a, a further shove along that path we've been on of destigmatizing mental illness and mental health support. Um, and we are seeing that in some policies, you know, we're seeing that the equity for mental health, um, care payment is, is moving along in a way that it was stuck for years from when laws were first passed that should be treated equally. And I think telehealth for mental health is going to continue post pandemic. And so I'm, I'm really hopeful that some positive will come from this, but, um, I think the other thing, Sarah, you said it, it's a privilege that you can have all that support, but I also think it speaks to a truth. I remember um, my aunt with whom I'm very close told me this when I was probably 18 or so and in a pretty serious, first very serious relationship. And she told me, you know, no one person can be your everything. Um, yeah. And that that was just Absolutely. such a truth and something I've I've carried with me forever that we need community, whether it's formal mental health professionals and supports or informal or church or family, we need community. Yeah. And we've all been so isolated this year. It's been hard. It's been hard. It, we, we say that it takes a village to raise a child, but it also takes a village to raise a marriage, you know, mm. and, and so often, you know, Sarah, you talk with the myth of the perfect relationship. And um, I think that persists even in church, which is terrible. Like that's our village, you know, for a lot of us, for those of us who do go to church and should be a place where we can bring um, the truth of our marriages and seek support and seek wisdom from, from long marrieds, from our pastor um, or pastors, from other folks um, and feel unashamed to say, you know, this is hard work. Uh, how did you get through this? We need more support um, and not feel like we're shaming our spouse. I mean, it's, that's, that's the tricky part too. I mean, um, we're all married to men and speaking for my man, um, he's very emotionally intelligent, but at times when we've maybe could have used more support, he was really reluctant to go see a marriage counselor or, or share anything outside of our marriage. He just wanted to, you know, us, the two of us to double down. But when you're both white knuckling it, I mean, that's really hard. Yeah. Yes. I mean, thank you for saying that. I think there's a lot of things at play. There's that myth of perfect marriage or the myth of perfect love. There's the myth of having perfect health And so the stigma or shame that comes with um, all the ways that we experience challenges 
um, I think make it hard to to create that village, to create that you know nine person marriage. And I know it was my journey too that um, I had to kind of swallow my pride and be like, hey, we need help. You know, I cannot do this anymore. We cannot do this anymore. If we're going to make it, we need help. And so there really was this come to Jesus moment. Like, are we going to do this or not? You know, are we going to address the addiction in the marriage or not? Um, Because I can't live like this anymore. Um, Mm. And, you know, another moment of shame for me to overcome. And this is this is crazy. And I use that word on purpose, crazy, because I reclaim that language. It's my lived experience of crazy. Um, As a local pastor in a small town, um, I was going to the pharmacy to pick up um, antidepressants. And I saw a parishioner in the parking lot. That's, I got so scared. Oh my gosh, I, I can't believe right I'm there. seeing this person. I can't look at them. I hope they don't see me here. I had my little bag of antidepressants. And yet what you were modeling was humanity and wholeness. Right, like that. That pastors that that pharmaceutical medication is a gift of God, right? And part of part of a whole spiritual practice. I just think it's so telling, Sarah. That you know, I think in I know you in I think in your first book you talked about your family of origins history with mental illness. So so as a pastor, someone who has studied mental health, who has lived with mental illness her whole life, you know, in others as well and grown up with that, to hear you say that it took being sort of at the breaking point to say, you know, to convince your husband or to to get the help, I just think is so telling because, you know, it speaking sort of from personal experience, a lot of times the response I get is like, well, it's not that bad. We're not, we're not struggling that bad. That that you have to wait until things are on the brink to ask for help and support is just so problematic, I think. And and honestly, it makes the job of people like me so much harder. You know, so often I wish people would come sooner, come sooner. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's totally my focus now. It's really a lot more about prevention, preventative care, you know, get into therapy, get into marriage counseling as prevention, you know, and invest in yourselves early on. And you're really going to save a lot of suffering, I believe Mm. can really and you know, there's some research around that with our brain health, that if we can um, address our symptoms early on, it and you can uh, speak to this, Ellen, but what I've researched, it can prevent further deterioration or further serious illness. And that's what um, I think is so important when we have kids, right? And thinking about our children and yes. looking out for those flags and yes. getting our children help. And that's another source of pride and swallowing our pride and being like, look, I maybe I'm not a perfect mom and maybe I don't have the perfect child. You know, maybe we're really just human and mm-hmm. and our human brains need extra support. And like in my family, I believe the research about bipolar disorder is genetic and it runs in my family. And so um, I can be the best mom in the world and have the best kid in the world. And my kid does not have a diagnosis right now, but my kid might later in life. And it's not because I did something wrong. It's because we're human and um we experience illness as part of being human. Absolutely. And being open to therapy or medication or whatever it might be for our kids might be exactly what we need to do to be the best parent we can be. Yeah. 
Sarah, it's so great to hear you speak of this, not as a binary, like we're healthy or we're ill, you know, we're mentally well or mentally ill. It's, it's always a spectrum, you know, yes. our marriages are all on a spectrum. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of um, the UCC. We're not great at talking about, you know, sin because of how, you know, all the baggage that that word comes with. But I try to talk about we're all good and bad mixed together. And not that there's anything bad about mental illness, but just to, to blast the binary on every plane. Um, that we're all a mixed bag all the time, you know? And and so maybe it's better when we check in with each other and ourselves and our marriages and our kids to say, where are you on a scale of one to 10 today? You know, to sort of just name these things as spectrum all the time. I love it. I love it. That's so key, Molly, especially in disability um, thinking and disability experiences. Like we might be able-bodied today. So that's like temporarily able-bodied. So like today yeah. our mental yeah. health on the spectrum, we might be doing okay or a little bit less than okay, but tomorrow we might not be able to get out of bed. Um, yeah. And then mm. the next day we might be able to run all the errands, right? right. I mean, it really right. does change day by day. And hour by hour, if you're a 14 yeah. year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was my 14 year old. task by task. Not even able-minded, right? For one task and not another on a given day. Yeah, and there's a lot of relief in that because I think so often, um, I you know I know this still happens to me at age fifty when I'm feeling bad, when I'm feeling stuck, when I'm feeling really sad or really angry or really irritated. There's a part of me that thinks, well, that's it. It's just I'm I'm always going to feel this way, and to recognize that it changes day by day or hour by hour is to say all I have to do slow down and be a little kinder to myself and do as well as I can to be kind to others. And this will pass. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly if I do the things to put myself in the best position to let this pass. If I call I in my, my eight other people in my marriage. Yes. And so, you know, we have to learn how to do that kind of positive self-talk, right. And like talk ourselves through things. And what I'm learning is that, it's also important for me to communicate that to my partner, yeah. right? To kind of share with my partner how I'm doing and check in and how are they doing. And then the third part is to share that with our child um, to kind of, because, you know, they're seeing everything that's going on and feeling everything. And I think what I learned growing up in a home where there was serious, undiagnosed, untreated mental illness is that kids make up their own stories yes. about what's happening. And what was so sad for me as a child is that no one was telling me what was happening. And so I made up in my head that um, I was unlovable that there was something wrong with me, that my father mm. didn't love me the way I needed to be loved, or it was my fault um, that things were falling apart. So I try to be very intentional with my child to say, you know, we're working on this, we're seeing a doctor about this, we're in counseling for this, and we're going to get better. Right now, it's a rough time. You know, um, we might need some space for each other. Um, I'm going to make sure you're safe and that you're loved and this is not your fault. Amen. Mm. Kids do take so much on. They see so much more than we think they do. You know, even if we're we're behind closed doors, they're very aware. Um, and as you say, they're making up their own stories and often taking responsibility because that's a way of taking power. It's like, well, if I'm if I'm somehow responsible for this, then I'm I, I have some mastery over it, even though of course they're children and they don't. 
um, and it's really not their fault. So, yeah, well, and I mean, depending on their age, they may still be very egocentric. So they're going to naturally assume that everything is about them or caused by them. And I think that's a lot of what you're getting at there, Sarah. And then, and then it does, but it can turn into those kind of futile attempts to gain regain control or to fix something that they're not responsible for fixing, whether that's by overachieving or, you know, trying to be the perfect kid to um, maybe compensate for what they see and hear happening around them and think that maybe they can, if they think they caused it, then they equally think they can somehow make it better and, and probably they can't. Um, and it, it goes back to the stories we tell. That was the other piece I wanted to unpack and what you said early on, Sarah, was, you know, um, so one of my roles is I work at um, a burn hospital. So I, I work with a lot of kids and teenagers who've, who've really suffered pretty significant recent trauma. And we talk about that, you know, there's, um, you, you build your trauma narrative and you, you need to tell your story and you need to start by telling your story with all of the mess and the pain and the difficult parts. And then as you tell it and retell it, you start to build in the other pieces, who was there to support you and help you and what went right when everything seemed to be going so, so wrong. Um, And that it's having those stories that helps us to be resilient when we experience trauma. And so we do need to think about what are the stories that our kids are growing up with? What stories are we giving them? to tell later. And, and it doesn't have to be a perfect, easy, clean story. It can be a messy story. Um, yeah. And yeah, how do we help them shape that? No. So can you, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know how old your son is, Sarah, but maybe you can tell us a little more kind of how you've thought about that or approached that with, with him. Over time. Yeah, so now, um, you know, I, I wrote my first book when he was two and, you know, this second book, he was, um, you know, nine, 10. And so um, I imagine that he might read these books someday. So I'm aware of that, right? And, mm-hmm. and what kind of stories I'm telling that will be recorded. Um, and so I did want to, sh- you know, I feel grateful that I'm writing from a point of recovery. And frankly, this second book was delayed a little bit because of that. I, I wasn't in a good place mm. and I, did, I couldn't write the book yet. It wasn't ready because I wasn't ready. And so writing the book from a place of recovery has really helped that trauma narrative to be one that's a healing narrative for my mm. family, for me, and I hope for others. Um, and so one of the stories I tell is with my post-traumatic stress disorder and my husband's anxiety and depression, uh, for men, a lot of times depression, anxiety comes out as a lot of rage, rage and anger. And so early on, there was a lot of raging in the house. And with my PTSD, that kind of raging, while maybe it was healthy venting for a very angry person, it triggered me to no end and terrified Mm. me to death. I just started to imagine all kinds of things happening just from rage. Um, Even though nothing was going to happen, I imagined the worst. And so I would grab my son, get in the car and just go driving on the highway just to feel emotionally safe. Um, So part of the recovery work for my partner is to how to manage the rage and express it in healthy ways. And for me, it's how do I manage my fight, freeze or flight response in Mm. ways that are healthy for the marriage and keep us connected because my PTSD causes me to disconnect 
as a way to keep myself mentally and emotionally safe. So I have grown a lot from that experience and it was scary. And we, we worked through it with a lot of help from therapists and doctors and family and friends who would pray for me because when I'm the most scared, I will reach out by text to my uh, closest friends and mentors and ask for prayers. Mm. And that, that did comfort me knowing that people were praying for me and for our marriage and our family through the hard time. That's beautiful. Hey, Sarah, I want to, I want, that's a great segue to talk about God. Um, you've, you, we've, you've talked about sort of facing your shame and kind of pushing through your shame to have more of a village in your marriage and parenting um, and pushing through the stigma with other human beings. I, I find that um, there's a, a shame in going to God. <laughs> and, you know, even amongst mm. liberal Christians who intellectually know better, um, there's still this like deep unconscious stigma. And I want to read this quote from your book because I think it's so beautiful. I think everyone should get a tattooed on their arm or put it on a cheerful plaque in their kitchen. Mental illness is not a character flaw, weakness, sin, punishment from God, or moral failure. It is a physical, biological, medical health condition. That means anyone with a brain and a body can get sick. So we know that. God loves us, that God made us just as we are, that we're not broken. We're not, you know, a rough draft. <laughs> we are just as God made us in all our wholeness. How do we remember that when our brain tells us otherwise? How do we come back to that place of belovedness? That is a key question. And that, Molly, is why we need each other. Because there will be moments, and there have been moments, where one of the symptoms of our mental health challenge is one that that really um, detaches us from feeling the felt presence of God. So, it, so sometimes our mental health condition manifests itself in a way maybe that blocks the light, mm. uh, blocks wow. the light from from reaching our soul. And so it's just a place of shadows, the valley of the shadow of mental illness. And we need other people to come alongside us, to companion with us, to hold that light and to be that real presence of God. Yes. Um, mental illness, one of the things I hate about it is that it isolates us, makes mm -hmm. us feel abandoned and totally alone. And that is so dangerous. Yes. And that can be deadly. And yeah. it's it's come really close. And I write about that in my book for my husband. And so um, I've been at the bedside desperate to hold a light of hope for him. Mm. And I needed other people holding the light of hope for me because <laughs> I couldn't be alone in that. And so we really need everyone yeah. to show up as much as we can for each other. Those concentric circles of care, you know, at that moment, your husband was at the center and you were tending to him and then you needed people to tend to you. Yes. Yeah. And I would just encourage all of us to get really um, practiced at knowing what to say and how to respond when someone reaches out for help. Because something I have experienced myself and I've seen is asking for help and getting silence. Can you walk us through what that looks yeah, like? Yeah, what does can that you, look like? Can you give us some bullets. 
Um, so if you get a text from someone saying, look, I have this going on, um, to reply and say, thank you for trusting me with this. Mm. I am with you in this. I am praying with you in this. I love you in this. I hear you. Thank you for telling me. I trust you. I believe you. And I'm with you. So there's no real need to fix or to save, but to mm -hmm. let the person know they're heard, they're seen, they're believed, they're trusted, and they're being held in mm. love. Mm. Of course, you want to make sure they're safe, right? That's that's like yeah. number one, safe from any kind of immediate threat of harm. But it's this companioning that we need to really practice and, and get good at um, because I've, I've reached out for help and gotten silence back. And that is soul crushing. Mm -hmm. really and, and I think it wasn't intended. They just felt maybe awkward or didn't know what to say. Yeah. And I know I, I sometimes have to fight the impulse to... Um, I love that response because I think sometimes our, our impulse is either to fix or to ignore or to maybe share something we're going through ourselves, right? Oh, I know I've been so overwhelmed at work or whatever it is to kind of respond in this way to sort of show empathy, but you're not really showing empathy because you're also sort of dismissing whatever the person is sharing by comparing it. It, to whatever it is that you're going through, whether you're comparing it like it's it's not as bad or equally as bad or worse, any of those things can feel um, wrong and bad to the person who's who's sharing with you to feel like you're comparing their pain to your pain. I and love, what I, I love to do you is for sharing with me. Uh, thank you for sharing oh, this welcome. with me. I like yeah. that. I'm stealing that. That's enough. That to, you know, that doesn't feel adequate, but it really is enough. I I know as a pastor, I need to remind myself constantly of that because my tendency is to want to give advice or fix because I hate to see people in pain. So of course I want to relieve the pain, but that's not my job. My job is to companion. My job is to remind and perhaps at most remind people that they're not always going to feel this way. Right. I mean, it's the other side of testimony. So that somebody's testifying what they're going through and the other side is witnessing. You know, we are witnessing the testimony. We are receiving the testimony. So that's what we, we connect with. I, I receive your testimony. I believe you. I see you. I hear you. I am with you in this. That's what, uh, I mean, to pull it, put it back to our or my field that, I mean, that's all about parenting too, right? To resist that impulse and um, desire to fix and to make it all right. And instead just to witness your child's testimony. I was, I have an 11 year old as well and lying in bed with him last night and he was just unloading a lot of stress related to school and his teacher and stuff going on. And, and I'm actively just listening and just trying to resist that impulse to say, oh, it's not really that bad, or it will be okay, or it's going to get better, or, um, but just first, just to listen and not to offer to swoop in and fix it. And it's really hard as a parent to do that, but so important, I think, because it is um, consistent with everything else you were talking about. It's, it's really modeling for them from the very beginning, how to support another person's mental health, man, you know, care for your own mental health. I want to give a little PSA here um, for a program that Sarah is a big engine for as the um, 
minister at the national setting for disability and mental health justice, which is um, a movement in UCCs to become wise churches, welcoming, inclusive, supportive, and engaged around mental health issues. Um, We have a parish nurse at our church who spearheaded this effort. It started with a book group, including Sarah's last book, Blessed Are the Crazy, Mm. five years ago, and it's bloomed into... um, a really broad-based effort. We've passed a statement, we've taken a vote, and we've trained over a hundred people to be mental health companions in our, you know, three, four hundred person church. So the and you know, everyone's different and some people are a little more skilled, but um, the idea is that we practice being present and being witnesses. And and that's with everyone from homeless mentally ill people who wander through our outdoor coffee hour and just being you know, a loving um, presence, you know, treating them with dignity and respect um, and not being afraid of them to noticing who might be a wallflower at coffee hour, who might be crying in the 17th pew at church, you know, and, and alone, you know, alone in a crowd um, and just practicing that skilled, non-anxious, empathic presence with folks. So if you are listening and you are in a church, this is available to you, whether you're UCC or not, um, you can reach out to Sarah or her team and learn more about that. That's an amazing effort toward uh, prevention too, right? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly what you were talking about, making sure there's someone there when you need them before things get too bad. Yeah. So Sarah, what other recommendations do you have as as we're kind of hitting the wall? You talked about prevention, kind of prophylactic, like get a therapist, everyone, if you can, if you if you have the resources and privilege and good mental health treatment. Um, maybe put together a text thread with people you trust of mutual support for each other's mental and emotional health, um, where you know you will be held and heard and you can hold and hear others. Um, Checking in with your partner and checking in with your kid. Ellen, having that downtime at the end of the day where you're not fixing, you're just listening. Mm-hmm. What are some other pieces we can remind people of in this really, really hard moment? Well, I would love to share with you, um, towards the end of my book, I come to realize uh, that it would be helpful to perhaps renew our marriage vows or to um if we're planning to get married, if, you know, I have a friend, she's dating someone who has pretty serious mental illness and she's kind of wondering, you know, is this the one, is this uh, someone who I can spend the rest of my life with? And so I'd love to share with you uh, these new vows for marriage. Mm. This is my promise to you. I will see you as a whole person and not as your worst symptom. I will love you for who I know you to be not for how you feel or behave. This is my promise to me. I will see myself as a whole person and not as my worst symptom. I will love myself for who I am known to be and not for how I feel or behave. This is my promise to us. We will seek support from family, friends, and a wider circle of care so that we may faithfully fulfill these promises. We will bless our marriage each and every day, knowing God is love and trusting that God is with us. Wow. It's beautiful. Just wow. I 
felt the Holy Spirit just coursing through my body as you read those words, Sarah. So necessary. (sighs) Anything else? Anything we didn't hit that you want to talk about? Anything you want to ask us? Anything you want to, where can people find you on social media or out in the world? That's a lot of questions um, at once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, another thing I would love to touch on, it might be another podcast, is intimacy, right? Intimacy because mental health conditions, as we know, really impact our behaviors, our moods, our speech, how we communicate, and our libido, our sex drive, how we want to be touched or not be touched, how we feel safe or how we don't feel safe. So there's a lot of complicated factors. And so um, to be gentle with ourselves and our partners and navigating um, how we express intimacy, how we want to express it, how we want to receive intimacy. And so we have some, something we've learned in our marriage is it looks really different than it used to or that we ever thought it would. Yeah. You said before, Sarah, about how um, isolating mental illness can be, and I think depression in particular. I mean, we we know it it is just a fact that de- depressed people can be hard to be around, right? When someone is depressed, um, people around them can can start to feel depressed, and especially in a relationship and a marriage. So I think not only can that isolation be the death of a person, but it can also be the death of a marriage. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about both how a partner can stay present for someone who's struggling um, when that's really, really hard. And maybe also how do you decide or maybe know when a marriage is not going to survive mental illness and, and releasing some of the stigma and shame around that as well. I think especially being um, a minister, a person of faith and, and for people who, who do feel the sacredness of marriage. So uh, what my experience has taught me is that there are moments where um, we need help. We need more people involved. It can't just be myself and my partner. Um, We can't be the ones to make it better. We need a close family member or a close friend or a doctor or a therapist to get involved for there to be any progress. So um, that's real. And so Mm -hmm. that's why the preventative piece, having all those uh, factors available and ready anytime. So I talk about a wellness recovery action plan, having this wellness recovery action plan in your marriage so that mm. when you get to that very tough spot where you can't be each other's healer and advocate, mm. ideally we can be each other's healer and advocate. We are a healer and advocate for ourselves and our partner, but there will be, and there are points where you just can't. <laughs> And that's when, you know, this network and this community, this circle of support need to be on standby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've got to, those standby folks have got to be prepared to be on standby and maybe even agree to it. So to have folks in your life that are on standby for you at, at a text or a phone call, they know how to jump in and they know how to help you get out mm-hmm. of the bad spot you're in. And, you know, my they're parents yeah, they're in position for the trust fall, right? Yeah, like, they yeah, might exactly. want to spot you, but they 
if they're not close enough, you're going to hit the floor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's the other thing. We, we really are in denial about how close suicide is for a lot of folks. A lot mm -hmm. of folks live with yes. suicidal ideation, but that's such a taboo, stigmatized thing to tell anyone about. Um, we don't often confess or tell folks that's where we're at. So it's a secret. Um, might even be secret to ourselves. That's a thing. You can have self-stigma and have so much self-stigma that you're not admitting to yourself that you're in that place wow. of thinking about harm. So uh, we're, we're all, you know, they say like we're all one uh, lost paycheck away, you know, from being homeless. Well, I think in this pandemic going into year two, it's scary to say it, but we all might be that one, you know, incident one more loss, one more hardship away from really thinking about self-harm. Yeah. And that's while it's scary to say that, I think it can save lives to mm -hmm. say that because yes. then we can get real about all the supports that we need to have to prevent any loss of life. Well, and it almost normalizes it to say, I have these thoughts, but that doesn't mean I'm going to follow through. <laughs> like I'm exactly. acknowledging these thoughts and now I'm acknowledging the skills I have, the support I have, the things I know to be true. Um, yeah, get that out of the shadows and into the open. Well, it goes back to yes. the spectrum, right? It's that it's not either yeah. it's not either or black or white, this or that, healthy, unhealthy, suicidal, not. There's a whole uh, range of thinking and feeling and acting. And if we can make it more okay to talk about when it's happening on the lower range, we can hopefully prevent more people from getting to that higher range. Exactly. And with gonna, uh, the topic of yeah. divorce, yeah, you know, my, my parents got divorced. My mom didn't believe in divorce. My dad didn't want a divorce. But it got to a point where um, the five of us kids weren't safe anymore. And the divorce needed to happen for my mom to have legal custody to ensure our safety. And um, it was sort of against my mom's religion. But she agreed to it uh, to save our lives. And in my religion, I believe that God wants health and safety and love for all of us. And so if our health, safety, and love means divorce, then that is a blessed divorce. Yes. You know, and maybe that's another book to, that somebody yes, blessed divorce. Yes. yes. That definitely needs to be written. Well, there's so much myth busting to do there too, right? About the impact of divorce on kids, that it's, that it's all bad or always bad. I mean- there's, there's, yeah, another whole episode there, Sarah. Another book, another episode. <laughs> Sarah, it's been so great to have you with us today. I'm so excited for your new book. I know it's going to help so many people. Um, I think it's available wherever books are sold. Sarah, a particular place you would love to shout out for people to buy it from? Well, uh, chalicepress.com is my publisher. So love to support the publisher, your local bookstore. Um, go to your library and ask them to order it. That would be fantastic. Buy them for your church library. And my website, sarahgriffithlund.com. If you want a personally signed copy, you can buy on my online bookstore. Oh, that's awesome. We'll put the link to that Wonderful. for sure in the podcast as and well. 
And when you read it and it helps you, go and write a review at Amazon because that really helps uh, bump things up and, and help books that um, otherwise you might not see get seen. And you'll help someone else who really needs it if you do that. Well, great to see you. Blessings on you and your book and your marriage and your family and your church and everything you have going on over there. And thank you for all you do to help liberate so many of us from the stigma of mental health and mental illness. Thank you, Sarah, thank you. for joining us. I feel like I've us. been to church. Yeah, thank you for Yay, bringing some light too. and rem- reminding us that there's always some light in the darkness, even in the darkness of this pandemic time. 